The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Martini, welcome to In Discussion today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you here. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'd like to start off the program uh, with reference to your website, a statement that you make, the truth is your opponent is yourself, and when you enable yourself, you love the people. Can you tell me a bit about that statement, uh, where that came in your journey? Well, that statement is actually uh, part of a movie that just came out called Oh My God that was produced by um, uh, Peter Rogers, pardon me, and um, he interviewed me in Los Angeles there in Hollywood area and asked me a question that led to that response. And I basically said to people that if you are able to uh, love yourself and be truthful to yourself, that is the biggest challenge you have the people around you are nothing but reflections of that. So if you can appreciate and love yourself and get on with doing what's inspiring to you, you'll appreciate the people around you. I'm just wondering, uh, from a literary background, you use the word the people rather than our people. Is there any significance in, in using that word the no, probably at that moment, that's probably what came out of me. Um, I, I probably based on the response and the letter, the question that he actually threw at me. Um, I don't know if there was something intentional. It's probably just a response. I wish I could say there's more meaning to it than that. <laughs> I'd like to, as with all my programs, so the listeners get a full comprehension of who you are and where you come from and your journey. To go back to the early days, I know that you were born in Houston, Texas. Can you, looking back in retrospect, tell me uh, if it was during those early days that you recognized this journey that you're currently on, or did it come later in life? Well, when I was a young boy, I, um, I was, you know, had problems with learning. And I uh, was told in first grade that I would never read, write, communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And um, so I, my idea about being a teacher and kind of an academic was uh, not really in the cards at that time in my mind. Um, that was, I got into sports and I was kind of into baseball and, and then I eventually got into surfing and I kind of, my goal at say 15, 14, 15, 16, 17, up to 18 was to ride big waves and surf. So I became one of those long-haired uh, hippie surfer guys in the 60s and 70s, early 70s. and. Uh, went off to Hawaii and California and surfed big waves. Then I nearly died and um, from strychnine poisoning and almost being killed, and um, my life changed. I had a huge 
kind of a transformation, and I met an amazing teacher that inspired me one night and one hour, one message, to do what I'm doing today. So I can't say at a young age that I knew I was going to be a teacher, but I look back now and see that there were sort of synchronicities that were guiding me in that direction, but I can't say that I saw it until I was just about 18 years old. Would that be defined as an awakening in your case, an awakening to a, a greater consciousness of the world around you? Well, we could say that. I think I was awakened to what my possibilities and potentials were that I thought were limited. I just assumed I was going to make surfboards. I had the opportunity to watch one of the best surfboard makers in the world, and I just assumed I was going to do that. And then when I nearly died, um, I kind of was sat there with strychnine poisoning and kind of prayer, I guess you could say a prayer kind of came to me, and I said, you know, if I live through this, I hope to do something with my life. I want to do something amazing with it. That's when all of a sudden, just a day or two later, I met a amazing teacher and my life did change so i can't i I, we could call it an awakening or it could be uh less densified i don't know what we would call it but let's let's call it a i was illuminated by an opportunity (laughs) what about the reading and writing at a younger age what was of interest to you well i didn't read till i was 18 I, i i i made it through elementary school with the help of the smartest kids by me asking them questions you know what did they get out of the reading because I, I had dyslexia and really learning problems i was in the dunce class in elementary school and the only reason i made it through school is by asking the smartest kids and then when i moved from houston texas to richmond texas i didn't have those smart kids i lived in a low socioeconomic area and um didn't have smart kids only gang members kind of thing and i failed and i dropped out of school so i didn't read until i was 18 that's when i went back because i had a desire then to learn and I overcame some of my challenges of learning. Who were the most influential or profound writers at that stage? Well, the first uh, you know, guy that inspired me meeting that man was Paul Bragg. And then um, you know, I just started to... My first book I ever read was Chico's Organic Gardening and Natural Living as a, a hippie surfer uh, gardener that I read. And I read it because it was mainly pictures of gardens. And then um, I started to go back and try to read and learn, and I had to go start with a dictionary. And then as I started to develop my vocabulary, I started to devour everything I could get my hands on in almost every field I could get my hands on. And so philosophers from around the world and theologians from around the world and scientists from around the world, I just kept going from one to the other and studying everything I could. Was the, I learned how. Within those aforementioned categories, were there any particular people who influenced you more, whether it was a theologian or a philosopher or a teacher? Well, the first, probably the biggest influence uh, started with uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the German philosopher, who um, in his Discourse on Metaphysics, he said that there was a divine order, divine perfection, a divine beauty uh, in the universe that few people ever got to know, and those that did, their lives are changed forever. That had an influence because I, I want to know what that was. And uh, even though I wasn't theological per se, I just wanted to know what that hidden order was. And then that led me uh, into studying mathematics, trying to find, you know, mathematical order in things. And James Newman's book, uh, The World of Mathematics, had an influence on me. And then I went and started devouring the history of mathematics and all the philosophers that did mathematics. And then I started studying philosophy. I mean, I went from the Greek, the pre-Socratic Greeks, all the way through to modern philosophers. And that took me through thousands of them. And then I went into Eastern mysticism and Western uh, theological structures. And I just, I mean, there's hundreds. I can't even put it in just a handful. There's just been hundreds and hundreds of writers throughout the ages that I've been blessed now to, to 
devour and try to learn. If you're looking at the uh, theologian uh, issues, did you ever start weighing up between uh, amazing people like uh, Darwin um, uh, versus uh, those those great people who who wrote the Bible? Did, were there any particular directions that your mind took with that? You're talking about order. Um, that was certainly something that, that Darwin had in in mind in his theories. Well, well, I thought Darwin was magnificent. The Origin of Species and uh, was magnificent. I read that in the great books of the Western world by Britannica, and um, I just thought that that was magnificent. I got inspired by that. Almost every one of pieces of my work that I do includes that uh, some of the premises that from that. But uh, I've been studying paleontology and evolutionary biology and various fields. So I include theological constructs when I find them constructive and useful, and I, I use also scientists and, and people in different disciplines that, that uh, add to my, I guess you could say, mix that I've been studying. You, I, liked, I thought Darwin had a great contribution. I thought that the challenge that he did to theology was a worthy challenge. I thought that some of the it's kind of the pseudo-anthropomorphic religious constructs that were out on the market at the time uh, deserved to be challenged. And I, But I do believe that there is still a kind of a natural order in the universe that, uh, based on the laws of physics, that we can, you know, personify and theologicalize, or we can just see them and appreciate them as, as their natural principles. In understanding universal laws, is there any way that you lean towards any of those areas with those laws? Well, I, I've developed a methodology which I call the Demartini method, which is a series of questions that uh, kind of analytical, analogical questions that try to assist people in discovering hidden order and balance that's in their perceptions of, of life. And uh, so, you know, going back to Zeno and his paradoxical dialectic process, which has been used for centuries by philosophers. I think that there's a, a, a balancing act going on. There's an inherent symmetry and order that's in nature. And even though our apparent chaos perceptions and theories, you know, revolve around this idea that we don't see it, the reality is it's still sitting there. And I think that, uh, you know, science gives us insights that uh, religion has is contemplated, but we're coming back with science and putting the pieces together to make sense out of it. I was interested in the method. Uh, one of the line items, you talk uh, to a, a procedure that neutralizes an individual's emotional charges, yeah. bal balances his or her mental and physical reactions. What is it about the emotive elements that, that you wish to neutralize? Well, what happens is I, I like to define emotions different than feelings. It's just a arbitrary thing that I... I uh, I use a different language on it, but I always say that whenever you perceive things to support your values more than challenging it, that you label positive over negative or more supportive or challenging than challenging, uh, you put a positive spin on. And anything that you see more challenging to your value, highest values, more than supporting, you put a kind of a negative spin on. One you open up to, one you close down to. One you tend to label as joyful and infatuative, and one you tend to label as resentful and sorrowed. And these are called emotions, whenever you have an imbalanced perspective. And then if you actually ask questions, which your intuition is trying to reveal, uh, to balance that equation, so you see a balance of support and challenge synchronously, uh, you have a different set of feelings, which I call gratitude and love, inspiration and enthusiasm. And those are states that are centered and balanced and poised and present, not so polarized and emotionally imbalanced. So I distinguish feelings that are emotional, which are imbalanced, and feelings that are inspirational, which are balanced. 
And uh, so I, I've used that. In the Demartini method, uh, it's a series of questions that bring balance to our perceptions that dissolve emotional baggage, you might say, and awaken the four cardinal feelings, which are gratitude, love of the heart, and inspiration of the mind, and enthusiasm of the body. Now, opposing those in that methodology, do you take into account uh, and use the human frailties uh, such as codependency fear insecurity do you do you arm people with that knowledge to know that they need to eradicate those out of their way of thinking well i I don't think it's wise to think you'll ever eradicate anything but i think when you're confronted by those feelings here's a tool on how to dissolve their influence see the balance transcend them and go on to the next illusion as i call it because I think that to say you're going to eradicate it would be, you know, uh, not realistic. But I think that, you know, we all are confronted by new challenges that we don't see the balance in, and our job is to go and find the balance and move past them and transcend that paradox and move on. How important is science in this equation? Um, you know, we, we, if I have this, this idea in life that people are conditioned, as it were, by uh, uh, science and technology uh, business, and general society there is a balance there and it's almost a day of reversing that psychology or reversing that conditioning but in the science and technology how important is that in this whole scenario well i i think i mean i don't know i've spent 38 years of my life exploring every friggin scientific discipline i can get my hands on so i i obviously think it's important i wouldn't have spent thousands of hours doing it but i i do believe that science if you go through the various disciplines, they will lead you to certain principles that are universal. And that is something to build a foundation upon. And I think that, um, you know, without that, we don't have anything to build on. So I do believe that science is an essential component because it's a a methodology to allow us to build incrementally, um, you know, and rule out things that don't seem to stand, anecdotal things. So I think that that's an essential component of our development. Yeah, and and the reason that I ask that is that in one of these uh, lines under your method, you you say a reproducible science enabling individuals to discover the underlying order governing their apparent daily chaos. Yes. So obviously science is a very important tool here. I believe it is. Well, the reason I'd label it as a science is because I can take a human being who has had um, a crisis or a stress or a loss or a death or whatever it may be, and literally train, reproduce, and duplicate with anybody how to take them through that process and actually come out where their gratitude and love and inspiration and enthusiasm. It's an amazing science. So it is a science. It is duplicatable, trainable, transferable. I mean, it works every time you do it. It's just a matter of doing it. I'm, tra- I'm doing a training program in Houston here uh, in about a week and three days. I'm starting, well, no, a week and two days, I'm, st- I'm starting a training program for people from around the world on that methodology, which I do three or four times a year. Now, you travel the world. You obviously travel through many cultures, um, and Africa has been a big part of that. How do you adapt your delivery, your method uh, if you're going from a westernized, developed society to a country like Africa? Well, you know, I don't think I've really done anything different. I think that people are people. They just want to, people want to be loved and appreciated for who they are. They want to get ahead. They want to expand and empower all areas of their life. They want to do something extraordinary with their life. I, I deliver 
that message, and I give them tools on how to do that. So I've been received well in every country I've been in. I haven't had any countries that I haven't, uh, you know, had any difficulties with. It seems like once I have a good translator that can say the message, I, uh, I'm blessed. I was uh, very interested in a statement or a testimonial here from Dr. Taddy Bletcher, where he says that you use uh, your gift of storytelling. How does that tie in uh, in the way that you educate people? Well, I think that, uh, you know, over the years you just run into real live stories that of transformation and change that, you know, you can pull out of your kind of rabbit hat if you, if you need it. And um, I guess I've got so many of them, I pull them out when I feel that they're appropriate for that setting. And, um, you know, I don't always plan them. They just pop up sometimes when I'm in the talk that, uh, that seems to match the question or the concern at the time. And I, I have plenty of them, so they just pop up. I can't say I pre-planned. I've never pre-planned a talk. I just get up and I share from my heart what I've, what I've been researching, and people seem to be inspired by it. So, And there's plenty of stories, so I just bring out the ones. I mean, I had a story the other day. I spoke to about 1,500 people at a church the other day, and, and I was talking on the science of my method. And the church was very receptive to it, and I shared a couple stories, and that seemed to be appropriate for that group, but I might not share that story again with another group for a year or two. The Martini Institute, when was it that that really started to emerge in your life? Where were you at that stage when this became a reality? Well, the beginning of it, um, it wasn't originally called the Martini Institute, it was called the Concourse of Wisdom originally, and that started in October 12th of 1982, uh, about gosh, two or three in the morning after reading. I was studying the Vedanta, the Eastern mystics, and I was just taking a break, and I kind of sat in meditation and for a moment. And uh, as I was doing that, a kind of a inner voice and vision kind of whispered to me, and I wrote down on a piece of paper the outline of a bunch of courses. And I kind of spent the next four hours until seven in the morning, um, you know, just writing and just composing a series of classes that I wanted to give. And that was the beginning of it. And um, so that emerged, and then it was formally uh, not called the Demartini uh, Institute till probably 2005. And it was actually called the Demartini Foundation, but we found out around the world that foundation was hard to put in every country, so we had to change it to institute. So it just emerged since, two, since 19, uh, eight, let's see, 1982 is when it initiated, but again, about 2005 is when it became formally the Demartini Institute. Now, in your work, I'm very interested in a statement, are you a leader? Could we expand upon that in your work? Are you a leader? Um, are you also um, recognizing that there are leaders and there are followers? So how do you balance between those two categories? I think that's a great question. Um, well, I believe that everybody has a set of priorities that they live their life by, a set of values, things that are most important to least important. Whenever they set goals that are congruent and aligned with their highest values, they tend to emerge with more confidence and more leadership capacities because they tend to walk their talk instead of limp their life. And uh, they develop a certainty, and they start to lead in that area, whatever that area is. It could be, you know, watching TV to leading a corporation to a social cause. But whatever that is, whatever that's meaningful to them, most inspiring to them, that's where their leadership is. And so I think that everybody has that. But many people are subordinating to people on the outside, injecting the values of others in their life, trying to be somebody they're not, and suppressing their leader capacity. 
and playing follower and kind of creating symptomatology as a feedback mechanism to guide them back into their leadership. So we all, in the areas of our highest values, are, are kind of leaders waiting to be emerged. And in the areas of our lowest values, we're automatically followers. I'm a follower when it comes to technology because I'm pretty ignorant about it. But I'm a leader when it comes to human behavior because that's my life's dream. So, so I think I'm both a follower and leader. What is the result generally out of your speaking engagements, out of your workshops? Do people recognize in themselves that they can be leaders or do they sometimes say uh, I would rather be a follower uh, I don't have the, uh, the the energy uh, to become a leader well the, the, I always say that your vitality is directly proportionate to the vividness of your vision and your vision is clear if you're congruent with your highest values so the, the, when people come to the breakthrough experience which is one of the 72 courses I'm offering uh, that when they go through that I don't let them get away with kind of a mediocrity thinking. I, I go in there and we just keep playing and working with it until they see things. And I explain to them that you're not, it's unrealistic to expect yourself to be a leader in things that aren't really important to you. So, so find out what that is. Let's define that. Let's determine your values. Let's determine what that is. And let's put you in the direction of what's truly going to allow you to emerge as a leader instead of trying to be a fantasy and um, setting out on something that's not really going to be a high priority to you. So I don't let them get away with it. And uh, they, they, everybody comes to breakthrough. That's one of the responsibilities they have to go through is to waken that up. They all have it. It's just a matter of what area it is. Now, are you talking about a breakdown to a breakthrough? No, it's not so much a breakdown. It's, it's a matter of identifying what their values are, which I have a method for that, and looking at what their life demonstrates, because everybody's life is already demonstrating what's important to them. All they got is look. It's, it's not what you say. It's what you live. And then we want to look at where they already are a leader, because we already assume they are in an area somewhere in their life, but they may not be acknowledging it because they're comparing themselves to other people, and find out where it is. I mean, some women are, are leaders of families, and some men are leaders of social causes, and some are leaders of, of putting social groups together and having a football game. But everybody has some leader. It may be micro or macro, but it's some sort of leadership, and we just got to find out where it is and then build upon it. Now, you've been working in the, in the Institute for many years here. What is it that you are experiencing in society now compared to perhaps 10 or 15 years ago? What are the main problems that we perhaps face now that we have to seek solutions for? Well, I think that people are constantly confronted with the acceleration in technology and having to adapt to new technologies and what technology represents and offers. And I think that's always a challenge of keeping up because, uh, you know, when you're young, I mean, we look at now that the teens and the people even under teens are advanced in technology. People in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, they're still behind the times. So every new generation is able to take on that new accountability of new technologies where the old one is kind of fading. So I think that uh, adapting to technological advancement is, is one big challenge. I think to, uh, you know, tackle the globalization process we're facing. You used to be able to invest in your own country. Now you almost have to go globalize to get, uh, you know, comparative economics. So I think that that's an adaptation to the to expand on the horizons of the markets and and deal with that with your lives because you, in order to compete you have to expand. So I think that the technology advancement and also the psychological advancement both must be kept up with. That challenge is is it worth 
saying to youngsters today, number one, make sure that you learn from history. Is it worth taking them back to the founding fathers of this country and saying, look, uh, this country and its uh, constitution set up a republic where each person was offered the chance to be his or her own capitalist using their tools? Is it, in your mind, uh, a good goal to remind young people of that, but also to remind them that it perhaps may not be in the, in the type of tools that we would have seen back in the 40s and 50s, but now arming them with the tools of technology in replacing those old forms and those old ways of life? I think it's essential. I think that uh, just like in embryological development during gestation, um, your single kind of pluripotential cell or totipotential cell, which is the first stem cell, you might say, the zygote, as it goes through the development process and differentiates into cells that are normal uh, for, the, for the various tissues, uh, it has to, you might say, recapitulate and go all the way back and go forward again. So I think us learning from the past like that and then building and going forward to the present and then going into the future is an essential way of learning. I think it's a wise thing because if you know it's done, you don't reinvent wheels and you, you get to learn the pathway. And I think it guides you. It's more efficient. Do you, do you, uh, do you, would you agree with me that the future is probably more about frugality than it is about the type of uh, economic platform that we had in the past? Oh, I think it's cyclic. I think that, uh, you know, prosperity and austerity are always balanced in the world, and they're going to constantly uh, recycle themselves, and we'll kind of stretch and then shrink and stretch and shrink along the way. I think that's the way human beings will function. So I don't think we're going to go into frugality other than a transient period, and then we'll forget that and go on to the, you know, the luxury and then go back to frugality again. So I think that's just an oscillating game. History has proven that, you know, if we look at it. Do you think there's any way to eradicate that situation so that we don't like the political scene, so we don't go backwards and forwards? No, I think uh, we're, our nature is, is an oscillating system, and I think that uh, you know, if we had complete wisdom, we would be steady and uh, pursue things in a patient, methodical way. But I think what we do is we swing back and forth with kind of emotions. I always say that... Uh, I use the example, and when you're in elementary school, you look on the front of a classroom, a science classroom, you'll see a little sphere, a series of spheres that they call atoms. Then you go on to high school, you find out that there are actually protons going around neutrons and electrons going around protons and neutrons. Then you go to college, you find out that there are actually quantum numbers. And then you go further into college, you find out there are probability distributions. And then you go further, there are abstract mathematical entities. And so you had to be taught the illusion to be ready for truth. And I think that we, because of that, we have vacillating emotional states uh, because we think we know something. And then eventually we get humbled by the truth that we don't know it. And so we end up uh, going through these oscillating states of learning as we go. And there's always constant new states of uh, challenge to keep us emerging and going and solving new problems. So I think they're going to have both along the journey. Is that perhaps a uh, not exactly a benefit uh, of technology today uh, it, it seems to me that we're bombarded with information on the internet we have the uh, social media platforms it, it, is, is to your mind uh, that confusing for people that it's uh, so much that they cannot digest it and, and create strong vision strong pathways because it's just too confusing too perplexing well 
I think that there's, uh, they say that maximum development and growth occurs at the border of order and chaos. So our job is to, if we get overwhelmed, our job is to hone that back down into a specialty so we can not be overwhelmed by the material. And then once we master the specialty, expand it and start integrating it with other specialties. So I think that, um, yeah, we, we would be overwhelmed if we took it all on, but we have to take on what we can and target and priority the information, and then once we feel we have mastered that, keep expanding it. That's the journey. I don't think we can ever take it all on. I don't think any human being can today. When you're uh, out uh, on these workshops and seminars, do you see different categories in front of you that you have to uh, adapt to um, in the same sitting? Uh, Could you be talking to corporate leaders uh, as well as people just from the local community. How, how do you work that? Well, you know, that's one thing that I feel is uh, I do have a uniqueness about. I, I'm very blessed uh, because I've studied various disciplines and because human behavior is my focus. Um, I am doing a corporate program uh, in October to executives, a high level of executives. I just did a program on, to, involved in politicians uh, in Europe the other day. I've, I've just did a program at a church. I've got an educational program to kids going on in South Africa uh, and also in Houston. Um, I did a program on health care going on in, in South Africa also. So I get a very diverse group of people that I speak in front of. I've got a group of uh, uh, a fundraising program in Mexico coming up, um, and that is an evening event for 800 people. Every day is a new group, and I'm, I have to adapt basic things, the principles of human behavior to different uh, niches, and I love that. I love the challenge of coming up with uh, novel ways of presenting uh, extraordinary information on human behavior. What are the solutions that you need to look at when you're talking to business leaders? I mean, they, they, they sit in the boardroom and they are somewhat isolated. They are responsible to the shareholders. They have, uh, there is a linear uh, line here going down through uh, the workforce, uh, finishing up with the consumer, a, a word I don't like to use. I'd rather use citizens. Um, how do you see corporate leaders having to change their perspective uh, in, in assuring that all of these people are working as one, having belief in their product or their service? Well, I would say that people never work for a company. They work to fulfill their values. And if they feel that what they're doing in their company fulfills their values, they're inspired to go to work. And when they can't wait to get up in the morning and go to work, people can't wait to get their service. So what I attempt to do is to link and associate the job duties that they have at their work whether they be a high level of executives or down and working in the factory, uh, to what their highest values are in life's demonstrating. If I can make those links, which I have a science uh, of asking a certain set of questions that do that and reproduce that, uh, I can get an increase in productivity. Now, if I've got an, an executive who's now managing five people who are chief executive officers or, or, or financial officers or whatever, operational officers, what I do is I basically find out what their values are, and I teach the CEO how to communicate what they need to be done in the vision to those people's value systems. 
And then those people, then delegating down the line, have to communicate in their value systems. So I'm teaching them the art of identifying and communicating in value systems to get maximum productivity and efficiency out of people. And in doing that, do you have to take the business leader back to the very basics, uh, understanding their background, their childhood, understanding uh, any fears that they may have, any chaos that they may have uh, pulled through their lives? Is that something that naturally comes out of them when this happens? I can't say in every case, but in many cases that occurs. I had a, a, a man who was in Australia that had a, a paper company and a wood pulp company. He was involved in forestry. And um, his company was going down. The Asian market was taking over it. And he was uh, about 62, was about to retire in another year or two. And he was kind of fading. And the people underneath him, the next level of executives, were sitting there going, we either got to get him out or we got to get him fired up, one of the two. So McKinsey Corporation asked me to come in and, and um, meet with him and spend a day with him and the four people under him. And um, I had to go in there and get down to why he joined and created this company in the first place. We found out that when he was a child, he lived in a very impoverished area, and, but he got bust into an area that was wealthy, and he was the one poor kid that didn't have paper. And so his dream was to never be humiliated and make sure that kids were never humiliated by not having paper. So he started a dream to be able to create a paper company to bring paper to kids. But once he got involved in the company, uh, he kind of lost sight of what his original vision was, and I had to bring him back to the original vision to get him inspired again. What did he do eventually? Well, in three months, <laughs> a downturning company was turning back up again. It took three months, but it was a change in this company. He got people fired up about the vision. He redid, uh, he put articles out into the media to, to start to say that Asia's not taken over, but uh, Australia's taken back, taken back their claim. And he basically got inspired again because he was winding down and wanting to give up and go and retire. I got him back in the game again, which his wife appreciated because she didn't want him around the house. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at two areas, activating entrepreneurs, and more importantly to me, inspired destiny. Can you just give me a definition of inspired destiny? Well, I believe that the hierarchy of your values, whatever they are at the present, and as they evolve, is determining where, how you see the world, act upon the world, making decisions in the world, and therefore your destiny at that moment. A destiny is a destination in time and space. Your life's journey is a series of destinies. So I like to think of it as that your values are determining that and inspire destiny. If, if you're living according to your highest values, you are inspired and you're moving towards your destiny, the destination that you're striving for to fulfill whatever's most meaningful at that moment in your value system. So I basically show people how to determine their values, help people set up and structure and prioritize their actions to fulfill their highest values, delegate lower priority things so they can get on with meaningful things, and move on and to fulfill what is most meaningful to them. And, 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 and in that method, how much do you have to uh, offer them in terms of the way that they must work with other people to aspire to this objective? Well, if they surround themselves with people who they're needing to delegate things to that are aligned with those delegations, then they're helping people fulfill their values. So they, they have to learn how to hire people according to the value systems that match the job description, and they have to learn how to communicate the delegations and the, the things they need to move on to them uh, and accountabilities in terms of their value system. Both of those I train to corporate people, and, um, and there's, it's, there is a science to it. There's a way of doing it. And if you find out what their values are, there's, I, I, I mean, I, you'd be mind-blown what you can do. It's, just, it's actually a science to reproduce that. It's not a major, you know, people would like to think of it as, well, there's all this emotional stuff, but the reality is there is a way of scientifically doing that and getting a result. 
Who are those um, groups here that are most impactful? Uh, is it young people or is it people across the board? Well, I think that uh, I think it was Dirac, the physicist, who basically said that if you want to get a new paradigm across, you got to go to the youth because the uh, the older people are frightened of losing their status or their position or their what they believe to be true. So I think there's some truth in that. Young people are more receptive, but it's certainly what you got to do is you have to find out the paradigm that the people who are more mature are owning, and you have to find out how they can fulfill those paradigms by presenting new information. So you have to you have to have the art of communicating in their value system, just like selling anything. You have to sell ideas. What uh, on the negative side uh, for a moment, and I and with my programs I always look for solutions. What do you see as the worst problems at the moment that is evident in young? people, not only in this country, but perhaps in places like Europe? Oh, I think they've come out of an era where there was sort of a good times, and so they've had it kind of taken for granted, a lot of things, and they're having to kind of bust down to get to priorities and make sure they bring service to people to build their businesses and their lives. So I think it's a healthy time, actually, because it's making people prioritize what is meaningful and what is important for other people. It makes people think about getting beyond themselves and getting to serving other people. So I think that's the challenge, but it's also the greatest opportunity. You have mentioned several times now this word of service. To my mind, it seems that we are going to see a future where we are all more in service than we could ever believe. Would you agree with that? I think we're headed that way. I think that's a good period. But once things are rolling again, we'll tend to get narcissistic and focus on uh, what's in it for us, too. We always have nature automatically brings the balance. Whenever we get overly narcissistic, we get humbled. And anytime we get altruistic, we get uh, lifted up. So our job is to find that balance between giving and taking. Are there any particular catalysts that could occur to avoid that? Well, I say that uh, nature is forcing you to do it. If you don't learn it and govern from within, you get forced from without to get learn that lesson. So uh, your business demands that uh, synchronicity of those opposites. So if we can go in there and, and pay close attention intuitively to what our feedback of our daily life is and daily business life is, uh, we can see it. The Demartini Method is designed to help people expedite that process by asking questions that keep you centered. Whenever I would have a high day, a big booming day, and serve a lot of people, make a lot of money, and get kind of puffed up and cocky, I have a series of questions that I ask myself. Who did I not serve? Who did I forget the name of? What procedure did I follow, not follow through on? What did I, who did I not care about? Whose name did I forget? I humble myself. And then if I did, had a kind of day that kind of uh, had my head up my butt, I basically go in and find out who did I serve? What did I accomplish? I have a, a self-balancing uh, set of questions that keep me centered. And I use those and I teach those because it helps people center from within instead of having to wait for the universe to center them from without. Let's talk about this word money. Um, I remember uh, as a great reader, you know, looking back to Milton and Paradise Lost, which is really where this whole paradigm of money began. Uh, What is it in today's society, do you think, that that money is... um, having such an awful influence over it, it whenever i talk to people whether i'm in the studio in front of a television camera or, or sitting in a pub having a beer it, it all, all almost i can guarantee you by the second sentence that people will mention the word money is there not something that we can replace this this paradigm with well i don't know i think that money is a, a magnificent thing and i'll, I'll explain why when, when we go back to the 
early anthropology, the first humans, you know, and they're kind of like families, nomadics, um, and they have their own little specialties. One's a hunter, one's a gatherer kind of thing. There's no need for money, really. There's, you're just having exchanging of food and this kind of thing. But once you start to put it yourself into groups and clusters and eventually into communities, um, specialties are born. Different uh, divisions of labor occur. And so what happens is one person becomes a leader, one becomes a basket maker or a weaver or something. And the value of the basket may be less valuable than the person who can organize whole groups of people to protect or to hunt. So we start getting a division of labor, division of values, and they have to have a means of exchanging those values. And so, you know, you may not need grain for the evening. You may not need a cow. But you had to create a vehicle, an efficient vehicle, of exchanging something for something. And money emerged. And money has been emerging from cows and coins to eventually paper and plastic to eventually, you know, electronics to now light. So now, at the speed of light, we can exchange, fair exchange with people for service for service. So I, I don't think it is, is a, a, a moral thing. It's not a good or a bad thing. It's just an essential thing for exchanging so people can have fair exchange in the world, which is what's necessary for fulfillment. Given all of that in the world that we live in today, I don't like using this word, but, but it's used a lot, and that is greed. And we have seen it. It's been evident in many cases uh, from Enron uh, forwards. When you look at those examples of where money is completely taken out of context or taken out of a, a position of what it's really meant for, how do you think that we have to change our viewpoint on, on ways to, that people can be better balanced, can live better lives, can have greater respect for others without uh, assuming that you know this position of making as much money as possible makes us better than the, the, the guy next door? Well, you know, I think it was going back to Zeno with his uh, dialectic and then on to Heraclitus who said that uh, there's a dynamic equilibrium of complementary opposites in the world. And then going on to Montaigne who went custom to custom around the world and found out that for every custom of one thing, there's somebody doing the opposite thing. And down to Michael Penn and his microtrends, it shows that, that there's always somebody that's got an opposite value system. Uh, on the planet. Very commonly we marry them. And what's interesting is that uh, for every person who's altruistic that wants to do something for nothing, there's somebody that wants to do nothing for something. And uh, these are pairs of opposites that are in our nature. And when people overvalue money, there's other people that undervalue money. And uh, so eventually the people that overvalue money, they get humbled and have to become philanthropic to neutralize that, which usually is the case, as we see some of the wealthiest people now moving in that direction. And then the people that are basically altruistic and have nothing, they end up on welfare, depending on people, by the IMF or some sort of local welfare system. So nature is forcing, by trial and error, this equilibrium point. If man understands that, if humanity understands it, pardon me, uh, of how essential it is to bring those, not to complete equilibrium, but an oscillating equilibrium within the classes, this is what stabilizes society. So if we go to one extreme or the other, um, nature forces us back in the center by catastrophic change. It was uh, Shakespeare, and I uh, discussed it with myself because I can't remember the quote, but he talked about the word frugality. Uh, he talked about uh, those who lived a, a frugal life um, were generally happier than those who seek great wealth. I'm guessing that this is an issue that has been talked about for centuries in a way to find that balance. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I've met people, I've hung out with some of the wealthiest people on the planet, I've hung out with some of the poorest people on the planet, and I find happy and sad to be in both. 
so I don't know that money necessarily buys happiness or sadness. I think that you you know that's a perception that occurs regardless. And uh, but I, I do know that uh, I know people that do extraordinary things with vast wealth, and I know some people that uh, you know do extraordinary things with poverty. I, I've met people that I mean I, I got inspired by a a 14 year old boy who is saving 15 percent of his 200 dollar a year income, was raising nine kids. His father and mother died of AIDS, and he inspired me. And I've shared his message around the world, but he's 14 years old. And he was making $200 a year, saving 15% of it, and buying a $200 house with a $20 down after a year of savings. So that's an inspiration. But I've also met some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And, um, you know, they've been inspired by their vision, uh, the, the vision that they're holding of what they can do on the planet. So I, I've, I've met people that are very wealthy and poor, and they do great things. So I, I can't say that it's just money that makes people. Uh, some people become infatuated with it and get into greed. Some people resent it and get into poverty. And um, I always say that nature forces those two people eventually into the center. And I think that it's wiser to just keep focused on the on the middle path, if you will. This is a uh, natural uh, segue into the next part, the well, final part of the program in the way that you have been affected yourself and the way that people who you have come across have inspired you over the years how have have they changed you how have they changed your outlook over the years well i think that it's incremental in many cases sometimes it's catastrophic or or you know punctate if they call it i i have you know, I've just been reading and reading and reading and reading, you know, for 38 years now, once I learned how to. And, and so you pick up little influence by thousands of people. And I can't say that any one is the only one or by any means, but I've picked up little bits and pieces along the way. I mean, and so I, I think that they, they incrementally have an influence slowly but surely. When I see something that I think is wise and fits in the cosmological matrix, I, uh, I attempt to incorporate it into my philosophical viewpoint and build upon it. And sometimes I have to diserect it and re-erect it and refine it, but um, I'm constantly trying to remodel it. And I, I appreciate thousands of people along the journey. I don't have one that stands out, this is the guy that I follow or anything like that. Do you remember looking back to perhaps your 20s and seeing where you were then uh, in retrospect and now looking at where you are now? There must be some principle part of you that has changed in that time, whether it's just growing up or maturing. What, what do you think the, the, the most profound thing is that's, that's happened to you over the years in the work that you do? Well, I think the most profound transformations occurred when I met Paul Bragg and almost died. That was one. Then I met a teacher that had six PhDs at age 35 years old that became a mentor at age 23. And then I've met a whole bunch of people. Almost, I, I sought uh, guidance and leadership in all seven areas of life. So I looked and traveled and studied comparative religions for religious spiritual understanding. You know, I went for business uh, entrepreneurs and executives and tried to meet some of the biggest powerful business people for business savvy. Same thing for finances. I've tried to go out and find the leaders in the fields to try to mentor under and learn from or at least study their works if I could. And um, they've all had an influence on me, but not one standing out as only. You know, I think that as I've gone along, I've I've started to synthesize and synchronize a lot of information, and I'm kind of standing on shoulders of giants. How do you uh, prepare for your 
daily schedules. Is there any particular method in which you may uh, meditate or, or take long walks like I do, or, or how, how does it work for you? You know, I, I usually have an agenda that's set up by the people, depending on the city I'm at, uh, in addition to my own. But at different eras, at different times in my life, I had different agendas. When I was in my 20s, for instance, I would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I would do yoga and meditation till 2.30. I would speed read text until 6.30. I'd go jog, come back, shower, go to school, uh, go to clinic at 7, come back and teach from 7 to 10, go to bed at 10 and start again at 2 again. I, that was my daily routine. But today it varies because sometimes I'm in flights across the country and red-eye flights but typically, I get up, I do a gratitude exercise of what I'm grateful for. I stop, I kind of meditate a second, I think about my priorities, I organize what they are for the day, um, and then I get in and I tackle what's going on. And I may have a different agenda every day. I may be speaking all day, I may be doing interviews throughout the day, I may be speaking and in interviews, I may be consulting, speaking in interviews, um, I may be traveling, um, I may be doing... Uh, writing on a book. I mean, it depends on what my day is and what's, what's on the agenda. Sometimes I have nothing but 21 interviews in a day. Sometimes I have nothing but uh, writing for the day. It depends. Is there a, a time or has there been a time in, say, the last couple of years where you've come away from a heavy day or a heavy week and you have stood there and really wondered about the deep meaning of, of life and your work? Well, I think I do that pretty well most of the time. I mean, I, I, I'm constantly digging and probing into the meaning of what I'm doing and trying to find where, where I can serve and be of service to people and how it's applied. You know, the Demartini Method I, I has many applications, and I was just talking to leaders in, uh, in Ireland the other day to try to work with them on how we can apply for education and conflict resolution. And I've got one here for the corporate. I'm working with a new uh, business corporate company that's involved in that. I've just worked with the, the Money Man Report here in Houston. It deals with Wall Street and its application in financial matters. We've got a pet program dealing with education for kids that I'm working on, another one in South Africa that's now being a, affiliated with uh, Teddy Blatcher. I mean, we've got, I've got projects going on all over the world. We've got another one in, on political training going on in New Zealand. So I try to keep a lot of things going, and, and uh, anywhere where I can apply the methodology, I'm, I'm working on it. It must be an incredible set of emotions that you do go through when you're talking to all these amazing people to see these people's faces, to see them light up, to see them respond to your values, to your wisdom, to your experience. That must be quite something when you, when you uh, get to the end of a lecture and you sign off and walk away. It, it must be quite astounding at times. It is. I, I just got to speak at a Unity Church here in Houston, Texas the other day. I was there speaking 33, almost 34 years ago. And I, they had me back. They have a new sanctuary, and they had 1,500 people there for me. And um, the minister, the day he started is the last time I spoke, and there he was again in the front row. And um, I was talking about living a meaningful and purposeful and inspired life. I'm not affiliated with any religion, but I was still speaking on it from a philosophical perspective. And um, it was extremely rewarding to see people I hadn't seen in sometimes three decades there. So that was meaningful. Doing what I can in Ireland the other day was very inspiring. And, you know, I live on a ship. One of my homes is a ship, so I travel the world on a ship. I'm doing a new program in, uh, starting in, in New York called the Privileged Lifestyle and Leadership Program for leaders uh, on the ship coming up in, in New York soon. 
And so I, I'm really looking forward to that because we've got people, the leaders in industries coming. I had the opportunity to do a program in South Africa, an hour television special on uh, captains of industry and uh, getting to share. And the feedback I got from that was just mind-blowing. So, yeah, I get tears in my, in my eyes and gratitude at night sometimes where I just cry for a minute, not out of sorrow, but out of thankfulness. In closing, what would your message be for young people today? What is the most important thing that they can focus on? Well, I just tell young people to identify what's most meaningful and inspiring to them and just give themselves permission to do something extraordinary with it. And I, I, I have them identify who they think are the leaders today that they admire, whatever the field is, and have them identify the traits that make them leaders, and then have them go dig inside themselves and uncover where they have it already. So they don't live in the fantasy that they don't have it and these other people do, but, and then help them wake it up and realize where it is and what they can contribute with it. And then to help them identify the goals and dreams and say, go out, get it. You're the next generation. Take, take command. Go with it. And I, I do it my best to inspire them. I, I've got about 100 students that I'm going to, young uh, teens coming up in South Africa in a few weeks that I'm looking forward to do. We, we start from 8 in the morning and go to about 7 o'clock at night and, when they're done, they got all kinds of new ideas and practical things they can do to go out and do some leadership, build their entrepreneurial spirit. What about uh, you and me, uh, the, old, the older folks out here and what we do? What, what do you think is the best legacy that we can leave? Well, I always say that um, if you set a goal, every time you set a goal that's aligned and congruent with your highest values, you tend to increase the probability and odds that you achieve it. You walk your talk. You don't give up on it. Because things that are highest on your value, you'll endure pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it, and you'll, not, you'll get up if you fall down. And you'll pursue it until it's done. So every time you do that, you tend to expand the space and time horizons of your accomplishments and grow yourself from kind of a, an immediate gratification mentality onto a legacy mentality. And so I tell people that keep setting congruent goals and know yourself, be yourself, love yourself, and take actions towards what that is. When you do, you will automatically give permission to yourself and to others to go on and shine and not shrink. And I think by doing that, you create your legacy. Most people set goals for, you know, a day, a week, a month, a year. Very few people set it for, you know, a decade, a, a generation, or a century. But the real sages think in terms of centuries and millenniums. And I think that those are emerging inside people that are really congruent. I've met people that actually think outside the box and think on those scales, and they're inspiring. Dr. Martini, it's been a great privilege talking to you today. Um, I'm inspired myself by your work. I do wish you luck in your, your future assignments. I will be following you very closely. Do you mind if I make one last statement? Of course. I know this is going to sound like flattery, but I'm really inspired by the questions you've asked today because I don't get them every time. I, I mean, sometimes I do redundant little questions in some radio shows and meetings and things like that. I really appreciate your questions today. You, you, you have a deep thought, and, and they're meaningful. So I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share what I got to share today. So, and I thank you for that. Thank May you be blessed and continue your work in making this such a difference. And you. Thank you very much. And to our listeners today, hope you've enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this, any other program in the series, at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile wherever you are in this world. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.